Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through to verse 30. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Then just jumping over to Acts 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Just a prayer. Lord, the truth is, these things that we've read and the truth that is contained within those words are things that are spiritually discerned. And so we need the help of your Holy Spirit to reveal the truth of Scripture to us. And we pray for that this morning. We take up the words of the hymn writer when we pray, Speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait on Thee. Hush our hearts to listen with expectancy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've probably heard people who are followers of Jesus referred to uh, with the use of all kinds of different names, sometimes even nasty names. I was listening to a conversation between two ladies on one occasion, and uh, one of them, they were speaking about Christians and some bad experience that they'd had with Christians, and one of them said to the other, and the worst kind of Christians are these evangelicals. 
I'm, I, I don't know what people are saying um, about you. I don't know what kind of names people are using when they refer to you, but the name which has really clung to these followers of Jesus over the centuries is the name Christian. It's a Greek term with a Latin ending, and it basically means people that belong to Christ or Christ's ones. And it was first used here in the city of Antioch. We're told that in Acts eleven twenty six. It's doubtful that this is a name that the disciples would have given to themselves. I think that if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that they already had enough names. Thank you very much. Uh, they are referred to as disciples, believers, brethren, saints. So they didn't really need another name. I don't think that, that this is a name that they gave to themselves. Neither do I think that this is a name that the Jews would have given to these followers of Jesus. I don't think that they would have taken uh, a messianic term from the Old Testament and used it uh, in reference to these folks who were followers of Jesus. I think that would have been just completely unthinkable um, for those Jews living in Antioch. I think that this was a name that the people of Antioch came up with all by themselves, because I think they felt it best described these people who were followers of Jesus, because as they watched, as the skeptical world watched and looked in, they could see that there was no other name that would better describe these followers of Jesus. Now, I doubt if the people of Antioch knew much about Jesus. I don't think that they knew a great deal about Him. But what I think they did know was that these Christians were not worshippers of the goddess Daphne, or indeed of the youthful uh, Apollo, the, the god of the light and sun. Because in ancient mytholo Greek mythology, Apollo fell in love with Daphne and pursued her across the face of the earth. She rejected his advances, and her father, in an attempt to try and help her escape her pursuer, turned her into a bay tree. And there was, just five miles outside the city of Antioch, a temple dedicated to the worship of uh, Daphne. And it seems that, the, that Apollo's pursuit of Daphne was regularly reenacted by the men of the city as they pursued the priestesses out to the temple courts from the city of Antioch out to this laurel grove and where the temple was. And it was there that all kinds of unimaginable sexual things took place. And what I think the people of Antioch realized that these Christians were different. They were different from them. They saw that the Christian men wanted nothing to do with this kind of, uh, with the ceremonial chase of the priestesses. They saw that Christian women wanted nothing to do with this sensuality and immorality. Instead, they could see that, that these people who were followers of Jesus and were in love with Him, they prayed to Him, they sung to Him, they talked about Him, they worshipped Him, they read about His commands so that they could obey Him. They could see that they were consumed with this person called the Christ. And they felt the best word to use in relation to these folks who are followers of Jesus is, why don't we just start calling them Christ's ones? Because they're consumed with Him. They don't want anything to do with some of the stuff that we're involved in. They just want to be consumed with Jesus. And I think it's 
it's great credit to the folks in Antioch that they were called Christ's ones. I wonder what people are saying about you. I wonder what people are calling you when they talk about you. Would it ever cross their minds to say that you belong to Christ? Are you the, do you give off the sense to those that you work with that you love Jesus, that you're passionate about serving Him, that you are consumed with um, honoring Him and uh, uplifting Him, and that He is at the center of your lives? Well, that's what happened in the church at, at, at Antioch. Interesting to read recently that the Methodists were first called Methodists because the young men that studied at Oxford and formed the Holy Club out of which the Methodist church sprang were so methodical, and so the followers were called Methodists. I was also interested to read recently that when Harry Ironside was traveling in China many, many years ago, he was referred to as Yasu Yan, the Jesus man, Wherever he went, they got him onto the pulpit, and, he, and they introduced him as the Jesus man. Here's the Jesus man. He's going to speak to you now. What a great reputation. What a great thing to be so closely identified with Jesus. Well, listen, I have four things that I want to try and pull out of these verses that I've read. I want you, first of all, to think about an exciting beginning, then we'll think about an encouraging visitor, a dynamic leadership, and an outward focus. But we're going to begin with, by looking at an exciting beginning. After the death of Alexander the Great, his kingdom was divided up amongst, eventually divided up amongst his generals. One of his most prominent generals was a man called Seleucius. And he, of course, uh, established the Seleucid Empire, which existed from 312 to 63 BC. And it was this man that founded the city of Antioch. So it had a fairly illustrious beginning. It became an important city very quickly, linking the spice and silk trades of the east with the cities on the Mediterranean uh, sea or ocean. And, uh, or sea, let's st stick with with sea, and it became an important city linking these, uh, these two people groups and this trade. It, it, it became the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Third largest city in the Roman Empire. Half a million people lived in Antioch. That's an incredible first century city when you think about the kind of infrastructure that would have been needed. Uh, it had a very pleasant setting. It was 20 miles from the coast on the banks of the river around. Orontes. Um, it was a cosmopolitan city, five different uh, cultures represented in Antioch. There were Romans, there were Greeks, there were Arabs. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that there were 225,000 Jews living in Antioch, and there were people from as far away as Persia. And they lived together in this melting pot, this cosmopolitan city called Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was also a commercial center. It became the capital of the Roman province of Syria. It was an entertainment center. There was a huge hippodrome in Antioch where people would half kill themselves racing chariots around um, a track. And it was also a very decadent place because of the existence of the temple of Daphne. And so people would come from all arts and parts to join in this sacred chasing of the priestesses out to the temple courts where all kinds of unthinkable things um, took place. It was a decadent city. It was the Las Vegas of the first century. It was the Soho of London. Uh, it, it was just a, an interesting place to live. Yet here is the thing. 
it was to this city that a group of men and women came, having been driven out from Jerusalem because of persecution. It was to this city that a group of people came and began to share with others the good news about Jesus. And they saw people's lives changed as they spoke about His death and His resurrection and His ascension and His miracles and His sermons and His stories. As they just spoke about Jesus, they saw lives changed. They saw people come to put their faith in Christ, and they saw a church born. Interesting that some folks who left Jerusalem only spoke to their fellow Jews, but here's a group of people who are concerned about more than their fellow Jews. They're concerned about their fellow Greeks. They walked into this metropolis, began to share their faith. I don't know how long it took. Maybe it took months. Maybe it took even years, but they saw lives changed and a church born. They resolved in their hearts when they arrived in Antioch that they were not going to be thermometers. They resolved in their hearts that they were going to be thermostats. They weren't going to be influenced by the environment. They were going to be the influencers. They were going to go into that city and make a difference for Jesus. They were going to share the message of Jesus with as many people as they could find wherever the opportunities arose, and they were going to make an impact for Jesus. And I want to encourage you, my family were at the first service, I made a couple of comments for their benefit, particularly for my daughters who are at school. When you go into your lunchroom, don't go into the lunchroom to be influenced. Go in there to be an influencer, to make an impact for Jesus, to stand a little taller for Jesus. Don't go in there just to kind of succumb to the atmosphere. Be a thermostat. Crank up the heat. Change the environment. Change the temperature. That's what these folks did when they arrived in Antioch. Here's the second thing that I want you to think about. It's this. It's the encouraging visitor. It wasn't long before the church in Jerusalem, the mother church, and the Hellenists had been driven out um, from Jerusalem possibly because they were being blamed for all that was happening in Jerusalem and so many folks coming to faith in Christ. So the Hellenists are driven out. Hebrew Christians remain, Hebrew Jewish Christians remain in Jerusalem, and they hear about what is happening in Antioch. They hear about that, hear that people are coming to faith in Christ and are being accepted into the church, and there's no rumor or no mention of circumcision being imposed upon them. And, and so they decide it's time for someone to leave Jerusalem and go and check out what's happening in Antioch. So they send a gentleman called Barnabas down. Now, we've met Barnabas in our studies in the book of Acts a little bit uh, earlier on. Last uh, autumn, we met Barnabas. He was a Jewish man, Actually, he was a Levite. He came from overseas, albeit just a little bit overseas, but he came from Cyprus. So he didn't come from Antioch and he didn't come from Jerusalem. We know from Acts 4 that he was a very generous man. Uh, he, he, he was the kind of person that gave to help others. We know that he owned a field and he decided that he would sell his field and that he would give the proceeds of, this, of that sale to the church, to the leaders of the church, to alleviate the suffering of the poor and and I think, I wonder, if not also to finance some kingdom projects. But he gave the proceeds of his field to the elders to help the church in the advance of the gospel. We also know that he was an encourager. He was such an encouraging fellow that they actually changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas. 
because Barnabas means son of encouragement. And, and it, it, it better suited his character, so they gave him a new name. If you don't like your name, you should ask the elders of the church to give you a new name before you leave. That's what they did for poor Joseph. They gave him a new name, and he's called Barnabas. And he just was a, he was a great guy to be, a great man to be around. He's the kind of person you'd love to sit beside on a Sunday morning because he'd ask you, how are you doing? And as he talked with you, he'd be an inspiration. And as he got up to sing the hymns, he would just make you want to sing with all your heart alongside him. He was that kind of guy. He was the kind of person that would just lift you out of the doldrums if you felt in the doldrums as you rolled into church. We also know that he was a reconciler. We know that from Acts 9.26. Saul of Tarsus was converted. He had been been heading up a, a campaign of terror against the church. He had been uh, imprisoning folks. He had been, it's believed that he was probably the guy, the person who presided over the stoning of Stephen. So he had been executing church members. And then God breaks into his life and he shows up in Jerusalem and the church at Jerusalem want nothing to do with him. The elders or the, the apostles want nothing to do with him. The folk in the church are saying, he's not sitting beside me. He was responsible for the death of my husband. Some of my family members are in prison because of him. Don't think for a minute he's sitting beside me in church. He can sit somewhere else. In fact, he can sit in another room altogether, thank you. And it was Barnabas that took him by the hand to the apostles and said, now listen, gentlemen, God has saved this man, changed his life. He's come to faith in Christ, and we need to accept him because it's not for us to determine who God admits into the church. So we need to accept him. So we know that he was a reconciler. And he brought parties um, together. And here he is in Antioch. And God is doing a new thing in this church. People are being brought out of paganism with all of its baggage. These folks were not used to singing in synagogues. They did not offer sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. They came from pagan temples where they chased a bunch of girls that were sacred prostitutes, in essence, out to the temple of Daphne. That's where they came from. Those are the stalls from which they were converted. And they come into the church. And Barnabas goes down to see what is happening. And and what we're told is, when he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. And he was glad. And he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was glad bunch of new converts. They didn't have any evangelical lingo. They had no, they had no uh, background in the Old Testament. They came from a background of paganism, and, and, and they'd been converted, and Barnabas was just glad in his heart. He was glad to see what God had done in their lives. He just rejoiced in what God was doing. Barnabas was their greatest encourager. Isn't there something really refreshing about meeting a new Christian? Someone that's just been converted. There's something terribly encouraging about that. A pastor friend of mine told me that when he was ministering in Glasgow, a young man got converted from the Gorbals in Glasgow. And I don't know anything about the Gorbals in Glasgow, but it sounds like a great name. Um, and, and he, this guy bought himself a big honking Bible, and he comes to church and, on, and on, on the way into the prayer meeting, he says to the minister, did you know that there's a man in this book? And he and his two friends were thrown into a furnace, and they weren't burnt, and they came out, and there wasn't even the smell of smoke from them. Did you know that that was in this book? 
And my minister friend said, oh, yes, I knew that. So he went home and he came back the next week. And the next week he said, did you know there's a man in this book? And he was in a cave with lions for a whole night. And the lions never touched him because an angel shut their mouths. Did, did you know that was in this book? There's something refreshing about someone who has just come to faith. And I think when Barnabas went down to Antioch and see, saw these folks who had come from, from the temples of Daphne into the Christian church, he was just thrilled in his heart to see their freshness and their vigor and their vibrancy. We're told that he encouraged them to keep going, Acts eleven twenty three. He encouraged them to make their calling and election sure. He didn't give them a bunch of things that he wanted them to do before they would be acceptable to him. You've got to be circumcised, and you've got to stop eating pork, and you've got to stop do, start doing this, this, and this. He didn't give them a bunch of rules. He just encouraged them to keep pressing on. That's all he did. And the reason he did that was because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was full of goodness. He wasn't full of badness. He wasn't grumpy. He was full of goodness. The Holy Spirit filled him and controlled him. The fruits of the Spirit were hanging from the branches of his life. That's the kind of person he was. He really wanted these folks to press on with Jesus. It's not hard to meet grumpy people, and it's not hard to meet people who put you off. I remember going on a youth weekend when I was a youngster, and honestly, I spent the weekend with one of the youth leaders, and I came home wondering if I was even a Christian. I was so discouraged and despondent. But I've had other people over the course of my life who've been a blessing to me, a real encouragement. It's, they've been Barnabases. And I, I want you to resolve in your heart this morning, this year that stretches out ahead of us, to be more of a Barnabas, an encourager, to draw alongside the people that are beside you in church on a Sunday morning that are in your sphere of influence, and encourage them to press on with Jesus. You know, I think Barnabas knew that when these people left the, temple, the church in Antioch, when they went back out, I think Barnabas knew that their friends would call them up and say, we know you do that church thing on Sunday, but during the week, you could be one of us. You could come and join in the stuff that we're involved in. I think Barnabas knew that the pool to go back was immense, and I think that's why his primary task was to encourage them to press on with Jesus. A man in the church that I was the minister of in, in Canada for a number of years told me about a friend of his who was in a church in San Francisco one evening. It was a fairly prim and proper church. Everybody was dressed uh, in suits and, and so on. It was very, quite a prim and proper church. And, and th this guy came in, and it was during the hippie days. And he had huge bell bottoms and no shoes on his feet and flowers in his hair and Hawaiian shirt and a bandana around his head. And he walks into church, and, and people are looking at him and saying, look at what's coming to church now. And he thinks that as he walks up the center aisle that someone will budge up and give him a seat, but no one's prepared to let him sit beside them. He's not sitting beside me, no way. So he comes right up to the center, right up the center aisle of the church, and he stands, and no one has given him a seat. So you know what he does? He sits down on the floor, right bang in the middle. And then one of the elders or deacons or stewards starts to make a move, and they come along the back, and everybody's nudging each other. Uh, he'll fix them. Jimmy will fix them. Jimmy works out in the gym, you know. Jimmy will fix them out. 
So Jimmy comes down, and you know what Jimmy does? Jimmy takes off his coat and sits down beside him, cross-legged, in the center aisle, and they wait for the pastor or minister to start preaching. Because out of a group of 500 people, there was one person who really wanted him to press on with Jesus. There was one person who knew that when he left church, the temptation and the pull to go back would be immense. And he just wanted to be a blessing in his life. And I long to be that kind of blessing in other people's lives. Will you resolve to be that kind of blessing in this year ahead in someone's life? Here's the third thing. It's a dynamic leadership. Barnabas is going full steam in the ministry of the church at Antioch. So he stays there. He's going full steam ahead. He's preaching sermons on Sunday. He's running Bible studies during the week. He's got one-to-ones going. He runs Christianity Explored in the local Costa because he hates Starbucks. Far too bitter the taste. Um, and, and Costa's a lot milder, so he, he's having his Bible studies there. He thinks it will attract more people. That's a fabrication, by the way. But he's going full steam in the ministry of the church at Antioch, and he decides to himself, I, I can't keep this up. There's no way I can keep this up. I'm going to run myself into the ground. Jesus had 12 apostles. Moses had 70 elders to help him judge Israel. I need help in the church, in the ministry of this church, in the leadership of this church. I, who could I bring that would complement my gifts as an encourager? Who could I bring into this church that would systematically teach the Bible week on, week in, week out? Who could I bring? And then he suddenly remembered Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul of Tarsus had been in hibernation for about eight years because he became such a troublesome character in the church at Jerusalem because no one really knew what to do with him and people couldn't cope with the fact that he had been converted and he was now a Christian. So he was packed off out of Jerusalem back to his home area of Tarsus. And he had been gone for eight years. And, and Barnabas has to go and look for him. He does, see that in the text? Barnabas goes to look for him because he doesn't know where he is. He just knows he's up there somewhere hidden from view. And he decides, I'm going to give him a, a chance in ministry and I'm going to bring him back and he's going to help me in the work of this church. And that is exactly what he does. And for a whole year, together, they serve this church, preaching, teaching, leading, um, pastoring, meeting people on a one-to-one for a whole year. They work side by side. You know, we often think about Barnabas, and we think, hey, he was a nice person. He would have been a gentle giant, a real encourager. But we don't think about the fact that he was a visionary. He was a visionary. Because not only did he pull Saul on board, by the time you get to Acts chapter 13, you see that he has expanded the preaching team to five. So now there are five preachers in this church, not just one of them, five of them have taken the, assumed the roles of leadership in the church at Antioch. And I think a lot of it is down to Barnabas's visionary leadership. He was not about a one-man ministry. He was about bringing others on and unleashing them in, in the work of the gospel. I am really excited to be part of this church, uh, to, to be part of a church that's involved in training new leaders, a new generation of leaders for Christian work. But when you think about the state of our nation, in Scotland, somewhere between 1% and 2% are evangelical Christians. And if it's 1%, you could get most of them in Hampden Park in Glasgow. It's probably closer to one and a half percent, so you couldn't get them all in, but you could get them in to Murrayfield and Hampden Park. 
In, in the UK as a whole, 3%, 63 million people. That means 3 million Christians, 60 million people that don't know Jesus. You know what we need? We need a new generation of visionaries. We need a new generation of Brother Andrews who will drive to the borders of closed countries with Bibles in their car and pray that God will shut the eyes of the guards and drive straight through and unload the Bible on a nation. We need a new generation of George Verwers who will trust God for the finances to float two ships carrying the gospel to port after port around this world. We need a new generation of John Knoxes who will stand for the truth and give voice to the truth and preach it with passion and conviction. We need a new generation of Barnabases. And it, it may just be, it may just be that God is tapping you on the shoulder to become one of those Barnabases in the context of our church, in the context of this nation. Barnabas was a visionary. The last thing I want you to think about is, is, is this. What's so interesting with Barnabas and Paul's partnership is it starts off Barnabas and Paul, but by the time you reach the middle of Acts chapter 13, it's Paul and Barnabas. Because Barnabas takes a step back and he pushes Paul forward. Here's the last thing. This is a church not just with a dynamic leadership, but it's also a church with an outward focus. Apparently, the church in Jerusalem had a number of prophets that were going around from place to place, and they were bringing messages from God. And of course, they didn't have the completed New Testament canon to guide them in all matters of faith and practice. So, they had these folks that were bringing them messages from God. And and so, one prophet comes down from Jerusalem. His name is Agabus. He tells the church in Antioch about a worldwide famine that's going to take place, and that's going to be particularly severe in Judea. He doesn't tell them what to do. He doesn't say, now here's what you should do. He just gives them the information and leaves it with them. Now, the church at Antioch came from a very different background from the church in Jerusalem. The folks in Antioch had never been to a synagogue. They had never been to the temple. They had never offered a sacrifice. They did not come from a Jewish background. But now that they had come to faith, they felt a sense of oneness with their brothers and sisters across the water or down the road. And they decided that they should do something to help the poor in Judea. And they gathered up a collection and they sent it down the road because they believed that as their father looked down on them, and saw that they had food as his children, and over here there was another group of his children, and they had no food, that their father would want them as, as his children to share their food with his other children. And so they gathered up a collection, and they sent money down to the church in Jerusalem. Now, I, I don't want to bore you with statistics and facts, and statistics can be made to say almost anything, but the truth is we live in a world of injustice, don't we? We live in a world of great injustice. One in five of the world's population lives in extreme poverty. Ten million children die, died last year. Ten million children died last year before their fifth birthday from elementary preventable diseases. And many of these folks are our brothers and sisters in the family of faith. And I have often asked myself, how does the father feel as he looks down on me as his child with so much resources? And over here, 
There's another one of his daughters, and her daughter is going to die before she's five because she can't afford a course of antibiotics. How does the father feel about that? I don't have all of the answers. I have more questions than I have answers when it comes to world poverty. But I just know that we walk away from it a little too easy. And I, I just want to say to you that here is a church with an outward vision. And, and an outward vision. They're concerned about more than what's happening on the inside between their own four walls. And sometimes as I trundle around from church to church and preach here and there and talk to folks, sometimes I come away with the impression that it's very introspective. And there's no world vision. The great churches of history have been missionary sending churches. And my prayer when I was a minister, was that God would send out missionaries from our congregation. My prayer as I've become part of this church family is that God will raise up a new generation of missionaries and thrust them out into His service, and that we'll do what we can to alleviate the poverty and suffering of the world. So the four things were very simple, weren't they? We thought about an exciting beginning. A group of people came to this city of Antioch, not so very dissimilar from Edinburgh. In fact, quite similar to Edinburgh. A group of people came, and they resolved in their hearts that they were not going to be thermometers. They were not going to change with the environment. They were going to change the environment. They were going to be thermostats. And then we thought about an encouraging visitor. Barnabas was a great person to have visit your church, and, and he never went home. He stayed he just came and stayed and was a blessing to everyone. But he was also a visionary. And uh, he showed some dynamic leadership. And I'm excited to be part of a church that has dynamic leaders. And the last thing is the outward focus. Let's not forget about the needs of the world in 2015. Let's not forget about the needs of the world around us. Let's be those who develop and cultivate a vision for the needs of the world. Thank you so much for your kind attention.